0: turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. Book of Acts chapter 6. If you're new to the Bible, oh, we're so happy to have you with us. This is a great place to learn how to read and understand the scriptures. And if you don't have a Bible or don't have an ESV, which is the version we use, there are copies available in the lobby. Now, feel free to grab one. Keep it as our gift to you if you need one. You can also just type in Acts 6 ESV on your mobile device and follow along that way. You will want to have it in front of you. We've got a lot to cover this morning. You might have looked at the uh, bulletin and been a little concerned about how big our passage is. I'm concerned about it personally. (sighs) Well, I realize, of course, that we just gave out the annual Manly Man Award, but I'm afraid our winner is about to be overshadowed by the man that we're about to study in the book of Acts this morning, for he is indeed a manly man, not, not because he has a big grizzly beard or built a log cabin off the grid with no power tools or killed a bear with his bare hands, though those are all manly things. Uh, no, this man, Stephen, who uh, becomes gets on center stage here and acts, he remains faithful to Jesus Christ even up to and including his death. This is the account of the church's first martyr the first man who laid down his life for the Savior who had laid down his life for him. And his story will prove both inspirational and instructive for us. Now, let me describe to you how I'm going to read this passage because I'm going to do it a bit differently than normal. If I were to read through this passage, I would spend about half of my sermon just reading it to you. The next 20 minutes. So here's what we're going to do instead. I'm going to read to you beginning in... Chapter 6, verse 8. I'm going to read through the very beginning of chapter 7. I'm going to skip a big portion of his speech and take you to the end of chapter 7. And then I will come back to his speech in different parts of the sermon and read portions of it to you there. Okay? That's how we're going to do it, do it this morning. So uh, look with me in your Bibles. Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. I'll read and then pray. And Stephen, full of grace and power was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Verse 11. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council, and they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Verse 15, And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face It was like the face of an angel. Chapter 7, verse 1. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. Okay, now, skip down with me. Verse 51, after his summary of basically all of the Old Testament. (laughs) Verse 51, he turns his attention on them. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did so to you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the Righteous One, whom you have now betrayed and murdered." You who received the laws delivered by angels, yet did not keep it. Verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord Do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. The very words of God. Would you join me in a prayer for understanding? Lord, we ask you now to bless the preaching of your word that those of us here who know your Son may be refreshed by him through his word. And we ask, Lord, that you would bless the preaching of your word so that those who are here who do not yet know your Son may come to know him and trust him as we have. So, Lord, we ask, bless the preaching of your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a man standing in the crowd, watching and approving of Stephen's execution, who would later write the following words to a church. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. I, I imagine the memory of this moment flashed into his mind when he penned those words. And in just a couple chapters, this man is actually going to become the focus of Luke's record of the spread of the gospel to the rest of the world. We read it in chapter 7, verse 58. The apostle Paul, at this time still named Saul, stood by and kept watch over the cloaks of those who executed stephen luke sneaks him right in first mention of him in the book and he's going to become oof, a big man in the book now i find this mention of paul so important because when i study the example of stephen i feel two things the first is a, just a profound respect and admiration for him He is the consummate example of faithfulness to Jesus Christ, no matter the circumstances and no matter the cost. He he counted the cost and knew what he would give his life to. But the second thing I feel, as I inevitably reflect on myself, as I read about Stephen, is an acute sense of inadequacy. (laughs) I doubt that I would remain faithful if I faced the kind of opposition that Stephen did his his example exposes a fear that I carry that if God put that kind of pressure on me I would give up I would shrink back I would buckle I fear that I wouldn't act as faithfully and boldly as Stephen did if I were in the position he were in how about you do you you share my fear or is it just me I mean, we live in America, right? We live in Orange County. For all of its problems, our lives are very good. It can feel like it costs us so little to be Christians when we read of a man like Stephen or think of the persecuted church around the world. Can, can we, we who live here in Orange, Orange County, 2022, really possess a Stephen-like devotion to Jesus Christ, especially as opposition to Christianity grows? My answer is, well, the Apostle Paul got it. He went from opposing Jesus Christ to promoting him. He went from destroyer of the church to builder of the church. Oh, it's possible to get what Stephen had. There's nothing that Stephen or the Apostle Paul or any other Christian that we respect had that isn't available to each of us. Now, now we may not face the same degrees of opposition that these men faced, but, but if we pledge our allegiance to Jesus Christ, then he will give us everything we need to remain faithful in the face of opposition. That was Stephen's story. That will be ours as well. We have everything we need to remain faithful in the face of opposition. What exactly? Well, the answers to that question will serve as our outline. We'll see them in Stephen. They're available to us as well. Five-point outline for you good note-takers. Five resources, I'll call them. The Lord Jesus gives us that we may remain faithful, especially when the going gets tough. Resource number one. Power. Power. Chapter 6, verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. We know from earlier in chapter 6 that Stephen is a remarkable man. I mean, he was the only one of the seven chosen in the first seven verses of chapter 6 described as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. This guy had a reputation. He wasn't just an early church administrator overseeing the daily distribution of the widows in the church. We find in verse 8 that he was a preacher of the gospel and a demonstrator of the gospel's power. He was full of grace, Luke says, full of grace. Oh, grace is a wonderful word, but a hard word to define in the Bible because it's such an all-encompassing word. Grace refers to all of the unmerited favor that God bestows upon his people. All of it. It includes his kindness in forgiving us for our sins through the death of Christ on the cross. It includes the fellowship he offers in the church. It includes the gifts that he gives us to serve. All of it is grace. Everything good he gives is undeserved, right? Everything good he gives us is undeserved. So everything good he gives us is a token of his grace. So Stephen is filled. He's filled with grace. filled with the undeserved favor of God. And that undeserved favor, that grace, sits atop everything else he possesses as a Christian, including the next word. He's filled with grace and power. Filled with God's power. This means certainly that his preaching was characterized by power, but but the focus here is on demonstrations of the power of God. I mean, just look at the next phrase. Doing great wonders and signs among the people. We get no definition of what those signs and wonders were. It must have included healing and other kinds of miracles. Don't know what specifically, but we do know it was attention-grabbing. People noticed what he was up to. And he used that attention not for himself, but as an opportunity to speak of the Lord Jesus Christ. Which is precisely what that kind of attention should be used for. Now, This was God's power, okay? Not Stephen's. And God gave it to him so that he could point people back to the God who came to save. What's remarkable about this is that so far in the book of Acts, only the apostles are recorded as having done signs and wonders. But now it appears to spill over outside of their number, outside of the twelve. Luke wants us to get it. This power isn't limited to the apostles. Stephen's a servant, he's a servant in the church, a member of the church, and he is engaged in the same kind of powerful ministry as they are. Well, that should capture our attention, for for God's power isn't limited to a select few in the church. God's power is available to all of his people, every last one of us. God can heal through our prayers, God can save through our sharing of the gospel, God can refresh weary believers through our words of encouragement, and he does. It's how he does it. It's his way of doing things. We are his instruments. And we must understand that his very power, his divine power, is available to each of us. And listen, there is no other way to do Christian ministry than by the very power of God it's a supernatural undertaking. (laughs) Being witnesses to the gospel like Stephen is not a mere human endeavor. It's God's work accomplished through his people. So friends, know you have this resource available to you when opposition rises. You have the very power of God available to you. Ask him for it believe he will give it and then take every opportunity he gives you for by grace he gives us his power resource number two words one was power to his words as I mentioned, Stephen's ministry attracts attention, and no surprise, not all of the attention is good attention. You know the old saying, all publicity is good publicity. I don't know about that. Uh, not so sure about that. Verse 9. Then some of the Jews, uh, some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, these are Jews who'd won their freedom from slavery, by the way, uh, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, uh, Alexandrians and those from Cilicia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. Now, these are all Jews from outside of the Promised Land, the Diaspora, mostly from North Africa. They take issue with his claims about Christ and publicly dispute with him. However, we find that their arguments are easily refuted. Verse 10. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Now, their inability to win an argument with Stephen, according to Luke, points to the fulfillment of Jesus' own words to his and disciples in Luke chapter 1. Here's what the same author of the book of Acts wrote back in Luke 21. Jesus said, settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, verse 15, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Okay, that's what's happening. They couldn't withstand the wisdom that poured out of his mouth because it was wisdom that was coming from the Lord. And they certainly couldn't withstand the Spirit of God which filled and enabled him to speak. Stephen's success at debate, okay? Here's in his first century debate league. His, his ability to argue tells us more about God than it does about him. His words reveal God's gifting and purpose more than his intellect. His words reveal God desires to prepare his people to testify to his gospel. Now, if you're like me, when you're going into a conversation or after a conversation, especially when I'm talking to somebody about Christianity or about the gospel, I I like to run drills in my head, right? Right? How would I say this? I should have said that. I should have done this. Should have said that. Should have asked this question. Should have That's what it's like before and after I speak to somebody about the Lord. But it has been my experience that when I actually do it, when I actually share the gospel with someone, the right words come at the right time. In fulfillment of Jesus words in Luke chapter 21. The Lord, the Lord has committed you to use you and I as his mouthpieces. And therefore, we can trust him to give us the right words at the right time for the right people. It's just what he's promised to do, okay? Now, if you feel inarticulate or unsure about what you might say in a situation like Stephen, trust again in the promise of Jesus that when that moment comes, you will say what needs to be said, look, this doesn't mean that what you and I say will be perfect or couldn't be improved or anything like that. Here's what it means. It means that what the, that the Lord will get out of us what he has put in us, okay? He is capable of doing that, (laughs) even if our minds falter and we're not that articulate. The Lord can get out of us what he has put in us, which is the truth of the gospel. Even if we bumble and stumble, he will make sure that his truth prevails, through a servant who wants to be a faithful servant and begins to speak his word. Look, he loves you and I enough to use our words. He loves the people that we're called to witness to enough to make sure that we can convey his truth. He will outfit us for what he's called us to do. So do it. He'll give us the words. Resource number three, okay? Power, words. Resource number three, understanding understanding stephen's articulate defense of the gospel does not satisfy his opponents however instead of arguing with him further they switch tactics they're going to slander him and turn the crowds against him verse 11 still in chapter 6 by the way don't worry we'll we'll get faster here in a little bit they secretly instigated men who said We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Verse 12, And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. We can't beat him in a debate, so let's beat him in court. Sounds kind of modern, actually. (laughs) Can't beat him in a debate, let's beat him in court. Verse 13, They set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. These these charges are really half-truths. They're true enough to look true. However, we don't have any evidence that Stephen actually taught the very things they're charging him with. It's likely that these men are taking common misunderstandings about Christian belief and accusing Stephen of teaching them even if he hadn't. That's the false witness piece. Now, if we stop for a minute and think about how Stephen's doing. He's got to be getting pretty nervous at this point, right? I mean, the situation's heating up. He's been accused of a high crime. He's been dragged alone before a religious court. His knees got to be shaking a little bit, right? apparently not even as all this is unfolding he's tranquil verse 15 and gazing at him all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel what a vivid description in other words he was radiant glowing joyful even comfortable confident Certainly the mark of being filled with the Spirit, but but I wouldn't be surprised if he was so calm and collected because of what he knew to be true. The content of which he unfolds in the next 50 verses. Stephen understood his Bible. Truly and accurately, deeply, deeply. He knew what the scriptures taught, and he knew what the scriptures meant. He knew that his teaching wasn't blasphemy like they were charging him with, and his speech just shows how well he understands the Bible. Now again, I'm not going to take you line by line through his recap of Israelite history. Oh, it's a great recap. Please read through it this afternoon. You get big chunks of the Old Testament storyline right there. Let me take you through a few highlights. Now there are two things okay that he's charged with that he's responding to in his speech it's a subtext in his speech in verse 13 they accuse him of speaking against this holy place and against the law the temple and the jewish law code they're saying he's anti-temple and he's anti-law And his response corrects three misunderstandings, okay, that that he identifies in his accusers. They've misunderstood the temple, he's going to argue. They've misunderstood the law. And most crucially, they've misunderstood Jesus Christ. That's what those 50 verses explain. Let me show you an example of each. First, the temple. His Jewish counterparts believed the temple was still the place where God dwelt among his people. Even actually if you read in the book of Ezekiel where God's presence leaves the temple. They were still convinced God was there. It was his house. So any talk of the irrelevance of the temple was deeply offensive. Stephen argues that they've missed it completely. They've missed the scriptures completely. He begins to show that God has always been with his people even when there was no temple. He was with Abraham this is what he starts with in verse 2. He was with Abraham when Abraham was still a pagan man in a pagan land. He was with Joseph and his brothers in verses 9 through 20 and their descendants, even when they were in slavery in Egypt. When he appeared to Moses in the burning bush, now or later on in uh, verse 30 and following. Uh, when he appeared to Moses in the burning bush, God called that place holy ground, even though there was no temple there. And we get to the pinnacle of Steve, Stephen's argument about the temple. Look, look with me, chapter 7, closer to the end, verse 48. He says, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. This is Isaiah 66, he's quoting Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is my place of rest? Did not my hand make all these things? In other words, your focus on the temple is misguided. God cannot be confined to a house built by human hands, and he never intended to be. He's always intended to be with his people, but not in a building they constructed by him. They've misunderstood what the scriptures teach about the temple, he argues. Secondly, they've misunderstood the law. Throughout his response, he points out that the original patriarchs, Abraham and Joseph, didn't have the law. They started to get pieces of it, like circumcision, which he mentions in verse 8. But then, when Israel gets the law through Moses, they reject it. Look look with me, chapter 7, verses 38 through 40. Here's what he says, speaking of Moses, verse 38. This is the one who was in the congregation, in the wilderness, with the angel, who spoke to him at Mount Sinai with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. In other words, he received the law. Verse 39, our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Having the law is not as big of an advantage as Israel thought it was. As soon as they got it, they disobeyed it. Not a great advantage to have it. And Jesus argued throughout his ministry that this generation was rejecting the law as well. They've misunderstood the temple. They've misunderstood and rejected the law. And therefore, because they haven't understood the scriptures, they've misunderstood Jesus Christ as well when he levels his criticism against his accusers, beginning in verse 51, he shows them how their misunderstanding of the temple and their rejection of the law led them to turn their backs on the Messiah. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people. Maybe I should tweet that at somebody when I disagree with them next time. (laughs) You stiff-necked people—I don't use Twitter, by the Uh, way—uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Bold words. As your fathers did, right? This is his summary. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. Here he's talking about Jesus, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels— and did not keep it. (laughs) In other words, sure, you've got the law, but you don't keep it. The Holy Spirit has descended the presence of God, no longer in the temple, but among the temple that is his people. He's here, and you resist him. And you have betrayed and murdered the Savior whom God sent you to deliver you from your sins. Stephen can say that confidently because he rightly understood his Bible. He understood the great purpose of the Scriptures, that they exist to lead us to faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus and his saving work is the key to understanding The scriptures, listen, we can't understand creation or sin or the law or the temple or the sacrifices or the prophets or anything else unless we see how they are all tributaries that flow into the great river that is the glorious person and work of Jesus Christ. If you miss the Jesus-centeredness of the Old Testament, you miss the whole thing. Now, Stephen didn't come up with this knowledge himself. This knowledge was given to him by the Lord. Given to him by the Lord. He didn't cook this up. (laughs) And friends, if you understand the Scriptures rightly too, that is a gift from God to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ and to equip you for good works in his name. If you understand the scriptures rightly, oh my, you have quite a resource. God's very words in your heart, in your mind. If you don't know that the scriptures are really all about Jesus Christ and appear to you to just be a confusing conglomeration of ancient documents— If you don't understand that they're really all about Jesus and his grace towards sinners like you, you're sitting in a room full of people this morning who would love to take the time to explain and show you how all of this is really about him. We have what Stephen had in the scriptures an accurate understanding of the Christ-centeredness of this book given to us by the Spirit. And that understanding, that true knowledge, is arguably the most important resource we have to remain faithful. Especially when the lies and trickery and deceptions come that will try to steer us away. A right understanding of Christ in the Scriptures will keep us safe and Faithful. So thanks be to God that he's opened our eyes to see it. Resource number four, courage. Courage. Now, I bet most of Stephen's audience wouldn't have a problem with most of his speech. That is until verse 51, until he turns their attention on them. Look again, verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did so to you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And then they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you've now betrayed and murdered. You who received the laws delivered by angels did not keep it. Well, it takes courage to tell that to a bunch of people who have taken you and bound you and are considering killing you but Stephen Stephen knows he knows it's not enough to simply tell them what the scriptures meant that's not enough if he was to be a faithful witness Stephen had to confront them with their sin for, for there is no way to receive Jesus apart from an honest acknowledgement and repentance of sin which means that part of our witness is helping under, people understand the problem of their sin. And my friends, that takes courage. That takes courage. And courage isn't something we can just drum up. We've been told over and over again that Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Lord gave him boldness when the time and that same spirit same spirit that's empowering him to be bold here that same spirit dwells in us and among us so pray for courage my friends pray for courage oh we're gonna need it talk to others about the problem of sin when you have an opportunity listen everybody even if they tell you they don't everybody believes in sin just ask them what they're outraged about that's all you got to do and they'll tell you what they think sin is Everybody believes there are things that are seriously wrong with humanity. And we've got to draw that out of them. You've got to help them see it personally, their own regrets and failures. You have to tell them that there's a holy God who will judge every last one of us, but also that that holy God is a redeeming God ready to forgive every sin. He'll turn to him and embrace his son who died on the cross. That takes courage. Something God is glad to give, so seek him for it. Ask him for it. Courage is required for our calling. Okay, resource number five, last one. Kindness. Kindness. Stephen pays the ultimate price for his allegiance to Jesus. It pays with his life. The crowd, of course, not real happy with him after he levels his accusations against them and, and well, he doesn't even get to call them to repent. <laughs> they, they get a hold of him before he does. And so in a fit of rage, they unlawfully stone him to death. The Jews, uh, under Roman occupation, were not allowed uh, to to execute uh, capital punishment. And so, in just a mob furor, they grab him and stone him. But before that happens, God does something very remarkable for Stephen. Look at verse 55, chapter 7. But he, Stephen, again, full of the Holy Spirit gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And Stephen said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Don't miss this. He'd been disputing with them about the temple and where God dwelled and God graciously gives him at the end of his life a vision of the heavenly and eternal temple, the place where Stephen is about to be. This is a way for God to show him his undeserved favor. A way for God to say to him, you've done well. You do understand. I'm on your side. Don't worry about what they're going to do to you. Kindness of the Lord there. Then his final moments on earth are recorded. The last two verses of our chapter. Verses 59-60. As they were stoning Stephen. Which, by the way, A cruel and awful way to die. He called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Those words sound similar to you? Almost the same words Jesus said from the cross when his life's work was complete. Stephen knew his journey was at an end. And so, with his last bits of breath, he asked the Lord to do what he already knew the Lord would do, to receive him into his presence. Verse 60. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this against them. And when he had said this, fell asleep. I love how Luke describes Stephen's death as falling asleep. The Apostle Paul would later take up this language as he described deceased Christians as well. Our souls go to be with the Lord, but our bodies are asleep until the final resurrection. It is a hopeful way to describe death. But look at his final words. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Again, sound familiar? Even though he had been grievously mistreated, grievously mistreated, his heart is filled with kindness towards his killers. He doesn't wish calamity to fall upon them. Lord, judge them. Stop them from doing this to somebody else. No, forgive them for their sins. Well, that's real kindness. And that kindness didn't originate in Stephen. Okay, it originated in Stephen's Savior. For from the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. His final moment on earth is spent imitating, quoting his Savior, loving his enemies just like the Lord. And so, friends, we must remember, especially in the age of outrage, kindness is a necessary trait for every witness of Jesus Christ. We are not Merely to be clear on the truth and bold in calling for repentance, though I hope and pray that we are, we are also to be kind, especially to those who are unkind to us. Friends, we do not repay evil with evil. But as the Apostle Paul would one day write, we overcome evil with good, which is precisely how the Lord has overcome the evil in us. My friends, Stephen was a remarkable man because he had a remarkable Savior. And we have the same Savior as Stephen. We have the same Holy Spirit as Stephen. We have the same Heavenly Father as Stephen. We have the same hope of glory as Stephen. We have everything we need to be faithful witnesses of Jesus Christ. No matter what comes our way. Don't worry about the world. The world's going to do what the world's going to do. And we're going to face whatever the Lord has determined we are going to face. And as we do, He is going to equip us to be faithful. So join me in praying that we would remain faithful. Lord, we thank you for the example of Stephen. He has now joined the great cloud of witnesses that cheers us on as we run the race after him. Thank you for his example. Thank you for Luke's record of it in your word. Now, Lord, Give us a vision, a a corporate vision as a church, but also a personal vision for each Christian here of faithfulness for Jesus Christ, no matter the cost. He is the greatest treasure. He is worth every sacrifice. So steel our spines that we may be ready to faithfully witness for your Son when the time comes. Oh Lord, for those here, for those here who are hearing about Jesus Christ, maybe for the first time, I pray that they would come to know him, and love him, and trust in him, and therefore serve him just as we have. For it is a great privilege and joy to belong to you, and to give our lives to serve you, to save people among us today, and make them like Stephen as well, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.